Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. And Haley Kamath. Hey, Amber and Alex. I have a very pressing question for the group. Great. I think Haley knows where I'm going with this. Are you ready for some football? Oh, <laughs> hell yeah. That's I was hoping I that's say. where you were going. <laughs> um, you know, I will feign a slight bit of enthusiasm because my husband did have his fantasy draft Amber, in one of the leagues he's in. Amber, don't step on my patter. I was literally going to ask you if Andrew had any fantasy drafts and did you perform an administrative role as you have in the past? <laughs> I love that you asked that, Alex. <laughs> I was so, literally going to ask that anyway and you preempted I love it. me. Please, I love go it. ahead. Well, he just had it last night. We're recording this on Thursday. He did it last night. I was tied up with a few other things. Hold up, hold up. Yeah. That is a late-ass draft. That well, stresses me out. Travis Kelsey got hurt, so this Take needs it up to be- with our commission, DC. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> that's true. I guess that's actually for the best. <laughs> yeah. So Andrew did say to me before the draft, hey, do you want to jump on the call with me to, you know, participate? It's all our friends. And I just was like, I'm not ready for a sport. I, I no. But let me know if anything bad happens and I'll swoop in as your PR person. So went without incident. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, you you used to perform some kind of like administrative duties. Well, administrative is not quite right. Uh, okay. Andrew may have a reputation for some questionable tactics around Ethics. Wow. Some of the <laughs> some of the things he'll do during the season. And so I was mostly PR wow. is how I would describe my role. Crisis yeah. management. Yeah. That's right, crisis management. So this, I'm I'm there if needed. That's what I'm there for. Is this one of the leagues that has like themes? Because wasn't it like Game of Thrones themed one oh, time? Oh yes. Uh, most years there there's a theme to um, that. Those were some videos that the commissioner, who is excellent by the way, uh, <laughs> put together for a few years in a row to announce the draft order. Oh, and that's so, right. Yeah, okay. it would be like one year is like Game of Thrones, but there've been a bunch of them. Yeah, it's okay. Again, this is why I'm involved at all. It is not the sports, of course. It's yeah. the friends and their creativity that draws me in. Yeah, as though fantasy football isn't dorky enough already. Um, <laughs> anyway, let's uh, up it as much as we can. <laughs> happy to hear that that that's still going on. Anyway, we do have a super interesting show. Later on, you will hear a discussion that I had with our own Brian Koenig, senior competition reporter as he is preparing to cover what is slated to be a 10-week trial in D.C. federal court brought against Google. It's brought by the Justice Department. It's the government's first monopolization trial in like 30 years, almost 30 years. And it, it surrounds Google's business practices and specifically the practice of basically embedding its search engine as the default option on basically any laptop or cell phone that you could ever use, which... I think most of us have just taken that as basically the standard, and it basically is. And the Justice Department has a lot of issues with that. And so this is pretty high stakes, not only for Google, but a lot of other tech companies as well. So definitely stay tuned for that. That's going to be a great one to hear about. But I know we also have some good news to cover today. Another big trial we want to talk about. Haley, I think you're going to take us to Texas. Yes, another trial. And I was going to say, uh, when you raised um, perhaps some some ethics concerns regarding your your husband's fantasy <laughs> football practices. This is also ethics related. So we've got a few... Uh, we got ethics. A few common themes here, which we always appreciate. So this week, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is in the midst of his impeachment trial before the state Senate. As you may recall, Paxton is accused of a laundry list of ethics violations, mostly stemming from his 
rather cozy relationship with an Austin real estate investor, as well as obstructing justice in a securities fraud case against him. The Texas House already voted overwhelmingly to impeach Paxson in May, and he has been suspended since then. But now the Senate will decide whether he's actually removed from office. And as expected, it's been an interesting trial thus far. The impeachment of an attorney general would always be newsworthy, but I should also note this is really rare for Texas. We've only seen two other state officials removed in this sort of manner in the state's history. Gosh, I'm so excited to get into this one because we did bring this up before on Pro Se, but it was well before we were at the trial stage like we are now. So I'm itching to get into it, but I think we probably need to orient people to exactly what the allegations are first. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good call. And I do want to say, you know, all of this is a bit weedy. So do your best to, to follow along here. The whole ordeal began in February when Paxton asked the state to fund a multi-million dollar settlement uh, to resolve a suit brought by some of his former high-ranking aides. Those aides had raised concerns about Paxton's dealings with the real estate investor. His name is Nate Paul. And then those aides were allegedly fired for doing that, and thus they sued the attorney general. That led, that request of Paxton's led an ethics committee to dig into Paxton. And that's when all these allegations emerged. The main claims that we're talking about here, Paxton is accused of interfering in an FBI investigation, violating his policies office on open records requests, and getting involved in a dispute with a Texas charity to help Paul out. In exchange, Paul has allegedly paid for renovations to Paxton's home, He gave an apartment and a job to Paxton's mistress, and he set up an Uber account under a phony name so Paxton could sneak off to meet up with her or meet up with Paul, allegedly. Paxton is also accused of misusing public resources and launching a sham investigation into the whistleblower complaints from his aides, and then, of course, retaliating against the aides. I do want to underscore here, as you might have guessed, and we're, we'll, we'll talk about the legal goings on, and we talked about this when we discussed this whole saga earlier. I want to state the obvious here and say it's obviously extremely remarkable that a Republican-controlled state house has already impeached a Republican attorney general. So the fact that we even got to this stage is pretty remarkable, and it's easier to understand when you give us the laundry list uh, there, Haley, of the right. allegations. We are kind of parachuting into the middle of this, though. There's already been quite a lot going on, as you referenced. What's it looked like so far? As of our recording time here on Thursday, we have seen three days of the trial. So I have a few highlights to run through for you here. One of the former aides testified that he initially signed off on the attorney general's office intervening in litigation between a charitable foundation and that real estate investor, Paul. But... This aide became concerned about a month later when he learned Paxton may have been planning to personally argue a motion in the case. The aide said Paxton is, quote, not a litigator. So that made absolutely no sense. The aide also said he suspected Paxton was under undue influence, potentially because he was subject to blackmail stemming from his affair with that woman who, fun fact, This aide also says Paul hired for Paxton. Another aide said they decided they had to report Paxton. The absolute final straw was they learned 
that an inexperienced outside attorney was serving subpoenas to Austin area banks. Paxton had pushed his office to hire the attorney because he wasn't happy with how his office was handling an investigation into, you guessed it, something Paul had raised, which was claims that the FBI was dishonest in obtaining search warrants for a 2019 raid on his home and properties. That aide also said he was, in general, very puzzled by Paxton's insistence on spending all this time on matters involving Paul because (laughs) there were a lot of other big issues in their office at the time, like a lawsuit with Google, COVID-19 guidance, uh, and election (laughs) lawsuits. They're like, hey, you know, this is a pretty big state. We got a lot of stuff going on here. He's uh, he's on this grind with this real estate guy again. uh, (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) continue. So on the other side of things, an attorney for Paxton has actually accused the aides of staging a coup in the attorney general's office simply because they don't like him. Um, And (laughs) one final thing I'll note that's, It's interesting in these sorts of things. Paxton is actually not required to be present at the proceedings. So he entered some not guilty pleas and uh, he can be on his merry way. Honestly, I wouldn't necessarily want to be there either to hear all of those (laughs) allegations. It's really a lot. But we're not done yet. What can we expect in the coming days? We touched on this a few months ago, but Paxton is expected to present a pretty unique defense That defense is that voters knew about his various scandals and still elected him. To hear more on that, we we talked about that at length on episode 300. So I won't go back into too many details here, but certainly go back and re-listen to that one or, or listen for the first time, perhaps. If Paxton is indeed removed from office, I mentioned this is pretty historic. It'll be just the third time in state history that this sort of thing has happened. Um, And I did want to mention what those other instances were because they are so long ago. In 1917, Governor James Ferguson was impeached. And then in 1975, a district judge was ousted. But that is it. The real Ferguson heads remember that case, though. That's that's big for Texas historians. (laughs) Yes. And just procedurally speaking, looking forward, if the Senate does vote to convict Paxton, each side will then get 15 minutes to argue for or against disqualifying him from holding any future office. So that could be a whole interesting debate as well after the main show here is wrapped. Um, And I do want to throw in a, a little plug. Our Law 360's own Catherine Marfin has been in the trenches covering this trial So definitely keep an eye on her stories for the latest. Haley, that one was so interesting. And I would love to pretend that we can turn away from ethics in this moment, but we cannot. I say all these ethics going down. (laughs) Yeah, it's only September. It's officially downtime for the Supreme Court. But I do have some news relating to those justices this week. And yep, it's ethics again. Again in this episode and also again, again, again for the Supreme Court. These damn ethics we're talking about. I mean, ethics ruin everybody's fun, clearly, is what we're learning. Uh, <laughs> well, fantasy let's get football, into how, it's yeah, running the everything. country. <laughs> well, let's get into how the fun is being ruined now. Um, so, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who has often pushed for the Supreme Court to have an ethics code, filed an ethics complaint this week against Justice Samuel Alito. Whitehouse's move follows scrutiny of Justices Alito and Clarence Thomas for receiving luxury gifts and a bunch of trips from wealthy individuals. 
This has obviously been in the news a lot regarding certain justices' interactions with donors, Republican heavy hitters, things like that. I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll get into that in a moment here, but let's keep it within the parameters of this complaint from Senator Whitehouse. What does it say and how does that whole system work? So for context here, if you don't know much about Senator Whitehouse, he sits on the Senate Judiciary Committee and chairs a subcommittee about the federal courts. He recently introduced and the committee passed a bill to create a Supreme Court code of ethics. That does not exist right now. And it would have also established a system to file complaints. So that's still in Congress moving through uh, the process there. Since that hasn't become law, White House took the unusual step to write to Chief Justice John Roberts, asking him to investigate Alito's alleged violations of what he calls several judicial canons. His beef with Alito focuses on Alito's comments in a Wall Street Journal interview, where he said Congress lacks the power to regulate the court. So White House pointed out in his letter that Alito and all the other justices told the Senate Judiciary Committee during their confirmation hearings that it would be improper for any sitting justice to comment on issues that might come before the court. White House says Alito's remarks to the Wall Street Journal about the ethics bill could in fact encourage legal challenges to it if it were to become law. A funny aside here regarding these sorts of Supreme Court ethics issues is, which also uh, plays into football. It all comes back to football today, folks. Um, One of my favorite anecdotes is my alma mater, Nebraska, the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, apparently Clarence Thomas, so not Alito, but Clarence Thomas was accepting gifts of like going to free Husker football games and never disclosed them. And that's like one of the issues he's run into, which I love. Haley, um, we're not going to talk about that one in particular, but we will get back to Thomas a little bit later oh, on good. in the story. Oh, good. So, <laughs> but, but, but I do want to talk about this, this Wall Street Journal interview. Absolutely. So White House pointed out that the interview was conducted by a Baker Hot Settler attorney who's representing plaintiffs in a major tax case that the court's going to hear this coming term. And that same attorney also represents a former Federalist Society executive, Leonard Leo. And the Senate Judiciary Committee is investigating Leo for uh, a luxury fishing trip he took with Alito. So that's sort of the connection, all the connections there. Leo's relationship with Justice Alito has been under a bunch of scrutiny since ProPublica reported that Alito took a private plane to Alaska in 2008. It was paid for by a hedge fund billionaire named Paul Singer. Singer's companies had disputes before the high court that Justice Alito did, in fact, participate in reviewing. It was Leonard Leo who helped organize that entire trip. So, in addition to all that, Alito assumed an honorary position last year on an advisory board of Catholic University of America's new law school program. The program explores this intersection between originalism and Catholicism. That program, according to some Law 360 reporting, was fully funded by an anonymous gift directed by Leonard Leo. So, long story short, White House wrote in the ethics complaint, the timing of Justice Alito's opining suggests that he intervened to give his friend and political ally support in his effort to block congressional inquiries. White House has long been a, an advocate for Supreme Court reforms of all stripes, and now we're, we're, we're focusing in on the code of ethics here. But these are, um, these are no small allegations. That's a pretty, you know, we're, we're, we're joking around here about ethics, but that's... Um, it's a pretty serious, uh, you know, charge to be throwing around. Absolutely. And in addition to all of that stuff around Leonard Leo, 
White House says Alito's also improperly using his office for his own personal benefit. The reason he says that is because Alito's actions, according to White House, are obstructing a congressional investigation that actually implicates Alito's own conduct as a justice. So you can see how this gets really serious really fast. I don't, and I could be, you know, not remembering, but I don't really think I've heard of a letter like this before. Is this unusual? Absolutely it is. So a professor of legal ethics at the University of Houston Law Center told Law 360 this kind of complaint from a senator is highly unusual. The professor, Renee Cake Jefferson, said, quote, I've never seen anything like this in my nearly two decades of work as a legal and judicial ethics scholar. So can't really get more unusual than that if the scholars themselves are like, this is weird. Haven't seen this. There remains a debate here clearly around who's right, White House or Alito, about whether or not Alito acted ethically in his interview with the Wall Street Journal. But all the legal scholars Law360 talked to did agree on one thing, and that's that the situation is very weird and that it is a reflection of the charged atmosphere around the conduct of the justices and this overall public sentiment and concern about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. So that's what's going down with Alito, but we do want to swing back to Haley's fellow Husker booster, Clarence Thomas. (laughs) Um, Go Big Red. If you've even casually been paying attention to news, various reporting coming out around the court, we've heard some allegations of corruption or at least the appearance of bias by Thomas based on how he's spending his private time. What's going on with that? Yeah, we definitely have some Thomas stuff to sort of lump in here because it's all a bit of a piece. Thomas was reimbursed three times in 2022 by Republican billionaire Harlan Crow for travel or meals, according to uh, Justice Thomas's financial disclosures that were released late last week. That included two trips to Dallas and one trip to the Adirondacks. This may sound like an echo of things we already have learned because of some, again, ProPublica reporting. Back in April, they published a real bombshell detailing Justice Thomas's relationship with Crow, who regularly provided transportation, lodging to the justice, and also his family over many years. There were lots of pictures of them at retreats and on private planes and yachts and that kind of stuff. So to sum up, there's more in these disclosures that's come out. There's also this push from White House around Alito specifically, but to get at ethics code more in general. And we will have to wait to see what happens also with that bill that White House had introduced. It could potentially create an ethics code, but it has to make it through the the process of when a bill becomes a law, and we know how hard that is in Congress right now. So this will just be a space to watch. A pillar of the modern internet is set to be tested at a landmark trial next week, as the federal government will argue that Google has illegally abused its power over online searches to smother competition. It is the government's first monopoly trial since its historic case against Microsoft in the late 1990s, and carries with it significant legal implications not only for Google, but other tech industry giants as well. Joining us this week is Law360 senior competition reporter Brian Koenig to explain what's at stake in this case and what he'll be watching for at trial. Welcome back to Pro Se, Brian. Thank you for having me. We appreciate you. This is a super interesting case with huge implications, which we will get to soon. 
Let's start with the basics, though. As I referenced up top there, the government's antitrust battles with big tech are really the stuff of legal legend at this point. And they're back at it again here. Uh, What is this Google case all about and how does it fit into that history? Yeah, uh, honestly, this is one's very easy to understand because if you have a phone, you use Google. If you take out your iPhone to run a search, Google is the default search. If you go on Mozilla Firefox, uh, the browser to run a, a search, Google's going to be the default. It is the default on almost every device, almost every browser you could think of. That's by design because Google pays all these companies billions of dollars in revenue sharing agreements to make sure that it is the default. The Justice Department sued in October of 2020, so towards the end of the, the Trump administration, to say those defaults are anti-competitive. That they actually lock out DuckDuckGo, they lock out Bing to uh, such a great extent that those companies have no hope of reasonably competing, that it forecloses the market for search and for the advertising you see when you run a search. You can see how high the stakes are here for Google. I mean, Google is a huge tech company now and does many things, but this is the foundation of its business. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's people- literally why Google is a verb. Exactly. Yes. And, um, you know, there was there's been a lot of sparring on these allegations from the Justice Department in the pretrial phases, which will inform what happens going forward. But we understand now what the Justice Department is after here. What has Google said in its defense and how has that been received by the court here in these uh, preliminary stages? It's all about quality and competition for Google because they say their product is the highest quality and that they compete for these contracts because this isn't just a Apple or Mozilla going to Google and saying, hey, you want to be the default. They theoretically open it up for bidding and Google happens to win that process by theoretically being the best product. And they argue that that should, that's, there's nothing anti-competitive. That is pure competition right there. And certainly we've seen some uh, sympathy for those arguments for the D.C. federal judge who's presiding over this case in a bench trial, uh, U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta. And he, he, among other things, has literally asked uh, the Justice Department in a summary judgment hearing back in April, basically, why does Google have to tell Mozilla, have to tell Apple, thou shalt allow other search engines as the default? And he didn't seem particularly satisfied with the DOJ's forward answer because they're a monopolist. That said, it was enough to, for the judge to reject Google's bid for summary judgment that would have completely killed the case entirely. Instead, back in the beginning of August, Judge Mehta did allow the bulk of the case to go forward, although he did cut out some of the claims from the a big coalition of state attorneys general suing in parallel to the DOJ. The DOJ's own complaint is backed by a smaller group of state AGs. Okay, let's talk about the trial itself. Um, I was reading uh, some of your coverage, which uh, has not published on the website yet, uh, your your preview of this trial, though it will be live by the time people are listening to this. So everybody should check that out as a companion piece. Uh, You wrote, uh, it's it's set to last at least 10 weeks, so good luck with that. Uh, And it's uh, in D.C. federal court. There's a a raft of stuff going on here. And what are some of the high points that you'll be looking out for um, as it unfolds? The trial, it starts September 12th. 
The DOJ's case in chief is supposed to run until about October 6th for 105 hours of witness testimony. Then we get the state AG's case. That's got uh, 65 hours running through October 24th. And then you get Google's case in chief of 98 hours running until November 15th. And the case probably won't be done when Google wraps its case in chief because then the DOJ gets its rebuttal. But that is at least how it's mapped out over the next two months plus. There's definitely a possibility this could run into December. I'm hoping that's wrong, personally. <laughs> uh, but what we're looking for, you're going to see a lot of executive testimony, uh, most likely. I think we can reasonably expect Google CEO Sundar Pichai to take the stand. We're also going to see a lot of executives from all those other companies with whom they have these default contracts. So, in fact, uh, a trio of very senior Apple executives, uh, vice presidents and senior vice presidents, had tried to get out of testifying, at least physically coming to court. They just said, our deposition testimony is enough. This is too disruptive. We shouldn't have to test uh, physically come to D.C. Judge Mehta said, no, you, you, DOJ can make you come in, make you testify. You're going to hear arguments that Google is going to try and say, we're picked because we have the best search engine and this is competition on the merits for these default contracts. But at the same time, the DOJ had tried to cut off arguments about product quality. Judge Mehta rejected that. So instead, you're probably going to see DOJ trying to argue that Google's product isn't actually as great as they claim, that it's actually, it, it's gone down in quality, that you run a search and you're going to get a lot of Google flights mm -hmm. and uh, Google maps, but it might take a while to actually get to the, the relevant search results. It's certainly something that uh, the advocacy groups backing DOJ have been harping on a lot, that Google actually isn't that great a product anymore and has gone down in quality in recent years. Another thing that I've seen pop up in your coverage and elsewhere is um, to do with, we're talking about how, how Google is often the default search engine on many of these devices and that a lot of these arguments have surrounded the fact that consumers can switch the default if they want to, but that's like been muddled up pretty quickly. I mean, what's been the dialogue around that? Yeah, the idea being that Google is a very sticky product. You're yes. Gonna, um, that it's hard to switch away from. Yeah, theoretically, you could do it relatively easily. But once you're there, very few people are actually going to take the time and effort to go and get another search engine. So the question then becomes, how powerful is that stickiness? How powerful is the default uh, to actually keep users there and not go searching for Bing or DuckDuckGo or what have you? Yeah, you can see how the, the argument would be like, there's a certain inertia that takes place over time. It's just like, well, it's Google that's on it. You might change it, but what are the odds you're really going to do that? I'm curious to see how that gets litigated a bit. They even argued in summary judgment arguments back in April that Google has had years and years to entrench itself to mm -hmm. the point where no one is even going to think about going with Bing. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, you know, I think we've made pretty clear what the stakes are here for Google. It is the foundation of their entire business, but I know that this is getting a lot of eyeballs from others in the tech industry. A lot, a lot of that probably has to do with the fact that this is a pretty rare case for the Justice Department to be undertaking. What is kind of the industry scuttlebutt as they watch this trial very closely? I mean, it was rare because we hadn't seen a, bit, a, a, a government monopolization case and certainly a big tech case since Microsoft, which we saw, which ended in the DC Circuit ruling in 2001. 
So then the government went 20 years without bringing a new case. Then we saw Google, and then we saw several others. We saw a huge case the FTC brought against Facebook, now Meta. That one is moving forward much more slowly, although still also in D.C. federal court. Uh, and we've also got another Justice Department case that was only filed uh, the beginning of this year against Google. That one's over their technology that they use to facilitate auctions uh, where uh, to place online advertising when you're uh, going to the New York Times or you're going to uh, another news publication that has ads and you see the ads on the side of the screen. That's how, how those ads get placed is through Google's technology. That goes to trial, uh, is expected to go to trial sometime next year in Virginia federal court. We've also got some state attorneys general cases uh, against some of the big tech giants. And there's rumors that uh, the FTC is going to sue Amazon some, uh, sometime relatively soon. So Google search is just the first case, but it's almost certainly not going to be the last. And how the judge handles this and how any eventual appeals, which are almost certainly inevitable, go, whoever, whichever side wins, could help decide exactly how much power antitrust law has to rein in big tech companies and exactly how much freedom they have to run their businesses as they see fit. No shortage of intrigue here, and we know what Brian's going to be doing for the next uh, two months and change of his life. I'd, I'd Myself <laughs> and um, uh, the other, our other antitrust reporter, Matthew Perlman. Yes. It'll be mostly me, but he'll be covering at least some of it. Well, uh, you guys will do us proud like you always do, so good luck with that. And thank you so much for uh, giving us the explainer here on Pro Se. Uh, very helpful stuff. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Brian. We typically end our show with something offbeat, but guys, I want to use this space as a billboard this week. Hey, we are not above self-promotion. We've been very clear about that. Uh, so <laughs> by, by all means, especially when our colleagues are doing very exciting work, which is what we're talking about here. Drop the plug. <laughs> I'm excited to drop a plug here. So we have a new sister podcast to tell you about. It's called Approach the Bench. It is hosted by Kara Bayless. She has been on our show many times as an excellent reporter at Law360. It's also edited by our very own Stephen Trader and support from Kelly Mercano. So all our greatest hits are part of this project. So that's where Trader's been. He doesn't, he doesn't really <laughs> respond to me anymore. He's been working on this very Look, exciting podcast. He's moved on to bigger, better things. Okay, um, well. So uh, the idea for this show is that every month, Kara is interviewing a sitting judge about the work of judging and the issues that they face in that role. You don't often hear the voices of judges themselves talking about important things going on in the courtroom, in the judicial system, even just how they approach judging cases. I mean, that's the kind of insight you don't get all the time. So these are going to be really interesting conversations. I'm excited for everybody to start hearing them. We've got a lot of great judges lined up. It's a Super exciting project, because to your point, it's it's rare for judges to be able to speak somewhat extemporaneously about their work. I mean, I know that there's there's always like sensitive concerns around that, but you know, if 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 anyone can do this, it's Kara, who's like very considerate in like the way she sort of formulates the questions in ways that are both sensitive to those concerns and also enlighten us, the listener. So uh, uh, good on yeah, her. It's great that you pointed that out, Alex, because I did want to say that the first show that's out now 
is indeed quite sensitive, but a great listen. So you may remember three years ago, a gunman targeted U.S. District Judge Esther Salas and her family. That gunman fatally shot her son and critically wounded her husband. Ever since then, that New Jersey federal judge has made it her mission to improve security for her fellow judges. She has a really great conversation with Kara all about that tragic day, how it changed her life, and what she's set out to do since then. Uh, The interview, guys, is so good, it actually made me tear up. I mean, it's really a moving one to start. I'm not promising that every interview can be quite that in this series, (laughs) but this is a must-listen for people that care about the law. I am. I'm promising that. You will be moved to tears every single time. <laughs> every single episode. No, um, but you know, in, in, in all seriousness, it's an awesome project. I'm, I'm eager to listen, and uh, I think everybody else should be as well. So my last moment of this plug is to tell people where to find this show. Oh, yeah, um, do that. <laughs> yeah. So all you have to do, <laughs> search for Law360 and approach the bench. It should come up in every major podcast platform. Wherever you're listening, you should be able to find it. And of course, if you're a Law360 subscriber, we will have news articles that go along with it every month. So you can just look out for those in your subscription. So everybody will be able to find this show. And I really hope a lot of people listen. I think it's going to be a great one. Guys, that'll wrap up today's show. I'm done with the plug, but I do want to thank both of you for an excellent program today. Thanks a lot, Alex. See you next week. And Haley. Thank you. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Brian Koenig, and our contributing reporters, Catherine Marfin, Courtney Buble, and Katie Bueller. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, that's when it would really help us out if you left a written review wherever you're listening right now. That helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.